Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are Matt Gardner and Pradeep Dasigi from the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Okay, for today's episode, we wanted to talk about uh, legal NLP. Particularly, we wanted to talk about this uh, dataset that came out recently on uh, statutory reasoning and tax law entailment and uh, question answering. As a guest today, we have with us Niels Holzenberger, who's a PhD student at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to the program, Niels. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Thanks for joining us. Also, as a co-host, we have with us Alexis Ross, who's uh, joined us for the last couple of episodes as well. Thank Welcome you. Back, Happy Alexis. to be here. Okay, so let's talk about the uh, data set. Can we uh, start by discussing an overview of the data set? Can you please tell us about what the data set is, Niels? Yeah, sure. So I think I need to give uh, just a little bit of background for this data set to make sense. So what we were interested in building this data set is uh, we wanted to model the logic and the reasoning behind law, behind legal statutes and regulations. And so for that purpose, I'm just going to define legal statutes as a set of hierarchical and interdependent rules. And then these rules happen to be expressed in natural language in many different documents that we call statutes. And so a somewhat natural task in that space is deciding whether or not a given case falls under a certain statute. So the question is, does this statute apply to this case or not? Does this rule apply? That's also kind of part of what lawyers have to do. So in this context, we're defining a, a case as a set of very concrete facts expressed in natural language. So for example, Alice made X dollars in 2017. Alice has two children. Alice is married and so on. And so we refer to that task of deciding whether a given statute applies to a case as um, statutory reasoning. And our goal was to build a benchmark data set for this. So what we did is we picked a uh, very specific aspect of law, uh, which was tax law. Um, and we took nine sections um, out of tax law. And then we um, pruned them somewhat, simplified them. And the idea was to smooth out all of the edges uh, while keeping the features that make it an interesting problem. And so each of these sections has a hierarchical structure you can subdivide them into uh, subsections. And then each subsection we're framing as a predicate that's going to be either true or false given a case. And then for each subsection, we wrote two cases, one where the subsection applies and one where it doesn't. So there you have a set of binary cases that in order to solve correctly require you to understand the facts that are stated in the case and how they interact with the rules that are stated by the statutes. And then in addition to that, we wrote a hundred cases where the question is, how much tax does the main protagonist owe? So this requires you to uh, output a number and not just a binary decision. Yeah. And then those cases were vetted by my co-author, who's also a law professor. Um, so that's um, Andrew Blair standing. Cool. Thanks. I think this is a very interesting data set. It's uh, quite different from many of the data sets that I've seen recently. And I think there are many exciting uh, things about this data set that uh, uh, we wanted to talk about. Uh, but before we get there, what exactly is the motivation behind uh, building this data set uh, in the tax law domain? Were you trying to make a hard uh, natural language understanding data set, or were you interested more in the domain of tax law in the, with the intention of building a system for you know, understanding tax law? So actually, that's a really good question. We've been, well, the answer, the short answer is both. Longer answer is the overarching theme that we have here is uh, modeling reasoning with tax statutes. 
and we want to understand what the logic is behind statutes. So the, th this would help understand how different pieces of legislation can interact and maybe even predict how different pieces of legislation interact. And so that makes this statutory reasoning um, task somewhat fundamental for uh, legal AI in general. So if we want to be able to model statutes and maybe predict um, how a new piece of legislation is going to interact with a completely different one, we want to be able to at least do statutory reasoning. Uh, and then the second reason is that it's actually, I mean, the legal domain is a fantastic area for machine reasoning. And so laws are basically a set of rules, and they're just true by virtue of being uh, written down and agreed to. So that actually uh, contrasts a lot with other domains like science, where rules are grounded in uh, the real world, and you can pick them up with a kind of, uh, kind of distributional statistic kind of setting where, you know, you learn from evidence and from correlation. Yeah. So in contrast, laws are stated mostly only once and then up to a couple of times, maybe. So they're kind of an, they kind of encode symbolic knowledge, um, but in natural language. And now why specifically uh, tax law and not some other legal domain? So there's a couple of reasons. Uh, the first one is basically everyone is subject to tax law uh, because either you pay taxes or at the very least you have to file taxes. So it's gonna, it's, it has a, a really broad impact on every person. I mean, everyone is a person, but also every business, corporation, and so on. And then also, the interesting thing about tax law is that um, ultimately, it comes down to computing the amount of tax that you owe. So ultimately, every case comes down to a number, whereas in other uh, legal domains, it's actually not so easy to assign a label to the outcome of a case. So for example, in, in, in legal case outcome, people usually project that to a one out of K labels. But in the practice of law, it's actually not that simple. So the tax domain has the advantage of being somewhat clear-cut as compared to other domains. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, thanks a lot. Right. So let's talk about how the data set was actually made. Can you please describe the process to us? Yeah. So we started out by picking the statutes that we were interested in. We picked, well, we started out with the section that defines uh, the basic tax schedule, so how everyone is taxed. And from there, there are a number of things that you have to define. For example, uh, what is taxable income? And then there are different types of uh, statuses that people can be in. So they can be married, they can be a surviving spouse, they can be a head of household. And so that will naturally draw other sections that you also have to have in order to define these terms. So we started out with this and then limited the scope at, at some point. And then we also took uh, section uh, 3306, which defines employment, and 3301, which defines tax for employers. So we sort of grew the set of statute until, statutes until we had something that, was, that had a reasonable amount of interaction that looked somewhat like the uh, entirety of the IRC. And then we removed anything that was just um, repetitive and didn't add any qualitative difficulty to the problem. So for example, just sections that are very repetitive, sections that are very specific, like the sections that relate to employment of sailors, for example. And then uh, from there, we wrote all the other cases manually. We wrote them ourselves, and then they were vetted by Andrew, who's a, who's a law professor. So with that, we're quite confident that they're correct, and that anyone who knows about the law, so probably law students and up, would actually be able to answer the questions correctly. Right. So you mentioned that... Uh... Right, I know that there are two aspects of this, or two subsets of this data set, where one is you're actually solving the solving an entailment problem, and another where you're solving uh, a question answering problem. Right? Can you uh, tell us more about that distinction? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So the, the cases where the question is an entailment question, it's basically asking, can, you, can the model understand this piece of the statutes, this uh, specific subsection, and then apply it to a given case? So roughly, you have to check that within the case, the, um, I mean, that the case checks all the boxes of the subsection, and then decide whether or not that subsection applies. So for example, well, the case which uh, tests subsection 2b1, so the, in the negative case, uh, the question is whether Bob falls under section 2b1 for the year 2016. And it happens that Bob checks all of the boxes of that specific subsection, except for one small detail. And so the subsection doesn't apply. So the model has to be able to pick up that Bob triggers some kind of exception uh, and doesn't fall under the subsection. Uh, for the uh, numerical cases, that's actually much more complicated, but the uh, procedure is the same for all those numerical cases. The question is basically, how much tax does Alice owe in 2017 or Bob in 2018 or something? So it's always a person and a year. And there, well, I mean, roughly the, the workflow that the model has to learn is that uh, you need to figure out whether that person's married, is a head of household, is a surviving spouse or some other status. Uh, you need to figure out whether they've employed people, how much they've uh, paid to those people, um, and then what their income is, what they have to apply a number of sections to compute taxable income. And then from there, you can actually compute tax. But taxable income depends on lots of things, whether you have dependents and so on. Uh, so actually, even for a human, it's a somewhat involved uh, exercise. Right. Uh, you mentioned a couple of examples, but can you please elaborate on those? Uh, can you talk about why these examples are challenging by going into some details of what a machine reading system needs to do? Um, yeah, I'm pulling up a case here. Yeah, so it, there, are, there are a number of uh, different scenarios that uh, these cases can fall under. In general, uh, you'll have to read the subsection that, that's in question in that case, and then you have to look up any references that the subsection makes to the rest of the statutes. In general, there's going to be lots of references, and you might, in the worst case, have to read all the nine sections of, of this data set. So, in, if you're lucky, you basically only have to read that specific subsection. Uh, for example, subsection 2A1A just asks whether or not the taxpayer spouse died during um, any of the previous two years immediately preceding the taxable year. So that's something that you can determine almost instantly from the facts of the case. I'm assuming that, the, that a, a machine reading model would be able to actually solve this kind of case. But then in other cases, it's a lot more involved. So for example, the subsection that, that just follows the one I mentioned, you have to check whether or not the taxpayer maintains as his home a household where one of uh, their dependents live. And you also have to check that the taxpayer is entitled to a deduction for that taxpayer. So that's already, you have to check whether that's a dependent. So you have to refer to section 152. And then you have to check whether or not they're entitled to a deduction. So that's subsection 151. So here the difficulty is that there are references that are implicit to subsections that are entirely different. Uh, and so, for example, in so a, a case that will test that subsection is Alice and Bob got married on this day, Alice died on this day, and then from this year to this year, Bob furnished the costs of maintaining the home where he and his son Charlie lived during that time. Bob was entitled to a deduction for Charlie under subsection 151c for the years 2015 to 2019. So here the model, from the fact of the case, actually knows that Bob's entitled to deduction for Charlie, but it still has to determine that Charlie is a dependent of Bob under some other subsection. 
Um, and here the, the catch is that Bob actually checks all the boxes, except that Bob also happens to be a uh, surviving spouse under those, I mean, under uh, an entirely different subsection that's not even mentioned here. And so that actually triggers an exception because 2B1 only applies if you're not a surviving spouse. So I, I would say the main difficulty is that it's mostly the interaction between rules, but it could also be that the model actually has a hard time picking up what a rule is and how you apply it to a case. So I think that's something that we know transformers can learn, but it's not clear whether or not they actually know how to do this off the bat, and especially not with a uh, small small training set, basically. How small is it, the training set? Okay. Uh, so we have uh, 200, well, we've got 276 cases, um, binary cases. And so we're splitting those into 176 training cases, and then 100 test cases. And then there's 100 numerical cases, so where you have to compute the amount of tax owed, and th those are also split in 80 train and 20 test. Okay. Yeah, we'll get into uh, some pre-training techniques for these things that you tried uh, a little later. But uh, before we get there, I had a couple of uh, clarification questions about the, about the kinds of reasoning you mentioned. Is it only for the question answering subset of the data set that you need to refer to multiple uh, statutes or sections in tax law or also for the entailment uh, problems? For the entailment problems, in general, yes, but not always. You, you can think of all these subsections as sort of a graph where you have an edge between two subsections if they depend on one another. So some subsections will say, well, uh, you have to have a dependent, for example. And so that's an edge to a, to a different subsection that defines what a dependent is. Um, so in, in general, uh, you have to check everything. But in practice, some of the sections will be sort of atomic and will not have any link to anything else. Right. So I guess uh, more generally, when these cases were written uh, manually, were they written in the context of particular statute or were they like written in isolation? Oh, yeah. Oh, good question. So that was actually a main design choice in this data set. But ultimately, I, we took the, the route of writing sort of cases that each test the understanding of a specific subsection. So one thing I forgot to mention in the train test split is that so for each subsection, we have a case that tests whether or not you understand that subsection. Um, because there's one case where the statute applies and one case where it doesn't apply. And we've been slightly adversarial about this, where we've sometimes picked a case where the statute doesn't apply. Well, we've picked a case where some other statute applies and used it as a negative example for a different one and just modified it a little bit. Uh, and in the train test split, um, each case pair is only within a single split. So for example, the, the case there are two cases that test for subsection 2A1A one where it applies, one where it doesn't apply, and they're both in the same, either train or test, I don't know, but they're both in the same split. Uh, that makes sense. I also had a couple of mm -hmm. questions. Do you know how well humans do in this data set? Oh yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, we were quite sure that tax law students and anyone with like a, a law education would get those things right, but we actually don't know about the sort of, let's say, average human, mm -hmm. average Turker mostly because these statutes are difficult. I mean, I read them and there were a couple of things I, mis I misunderstood, which Andrew cleared up for me. So I would assume that uh, ordinary humans would not get mm -hmm. 100%. But we actually don't know exactly like, what their performance, what their accuracy would be. It would also be interesting to know what their mm -hmm. learning curve is, because um, 
it's a, it's a whole bunch of documents. So the first case would take you a long time, but then the other ones would be faster. But that is definitely um, gotcha. true. Trouble. And kind of a related question: Are there cases, maybe not in this dataset, but in this dataset and kind of in tax law in general, where it's actually kind of unclear or undefined whether a particular statute applies, or is that outside of the realm of tax law? You mentioned that it's kind of a more uh, it's more clear cut in tax law compared to other laws. So I was just curious about how well defined this task is more generally. Yeah, that's also a good question. So in, in, in general, it's a big problem to know whether or not a given subsection applies. And there's tons of dispute about this uh, mm-hmm. within tax law. Because obviously, if a stat, I mean, for some companies, if a sta- whether or not a statute applies to you means paying a million dollars more in taxes or not. So these things are constantly mm-hmm. being okay. disputed. What happens is once you have a a statute that's um, put out, then the Internal Revenue Service actually writes a whole bunch of regulations that are that's sort of meta information about that statute. So they elaborate on what the terms mean, on what the scope of that thing is, and they even make up uh, sort of imaginary, like hypothetical cases uh, as examples to illustrate how statutes apply or don't apply. But yes, in, in general, it's not always super clear how and whether or not a statute applies. It's, it's mostly practice that's going to dictate how those things work. Gotcha. Thank you. As, as far as our data set is concerned, the sections we've picked are very well mm-hmm. supported by uh, the regulations that the IRS produces. So we're kind of, we're, we're within the, not we're definitely not in the gray zone where, we, where it's not clear. We're definitely sure how these things apply in gotcha. our cases. Thank you. Yeah, I guess it would be really interesting to see, uh, as, as you were saying earlier, uh, that it it would be very interesting to see how well an average person would do and how well a, uh, a professional would do on these problems to get an estimate of an upper bound of how well machines can be expected to do. Right? Um, okay, so talking about uh, solving uh, these tasks, let's talk about the solvers you've uh, built for this task. You have a prologue solver, which I thought was really cool. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. So the idea in writing this prolog solver was that sort of to, yeah, the, the idea was that um, there have been prolog solvers that were written for pieces of legislation before in, in previous work and older work. And so this was sort of a reaffirmation that you could solve this data set if you had perfect reasoning abilities. So that's what prolog has. And then perfect natural language understanding capabilities. That's sort of what we have in writing that prolog solver. So the, the way I did this, I was actually able to sort of refer to past work on, the, on this, this type of endeavor. And so I essentially each subsection of the statutes you can frame as a predicate. And you can actually mostly translate every single subsection to a prologue uh, predicate. So you need a bunch of helper functions, obviously, but you, you basically do that. And then you also need to decide on some kind of ontology to represent uh, what happens in the real world. Uh, so for, for example, how would you translate that, I don't know, Alice made um, X amount of dollars in 2017. How would you represent that uh, Alice is married to Bob or, and, and such things? Um, you have to decide on some kind of ontology. And for that, I just picked whatever was implicit within the statutes. So anything that the statutes didn't further define, I assumed was some sort of um, atomic event. Um, so for example, getting married is an, an atomic event, although in the real world, that would be a lot more complex and Saying that someone's married to someone else is actually already abstracting away a lot of things. Same thing for, this is especially true in the realm of transactions. So for example, buying and selling stock is incredibly complex and uh, 
but but there, there's been work uh, on that. So I mostly followed that. Uh, right. So uh, to talk about the details here, you translated each um, statute and each case into a set of prologue rules, correct? Uh, uh, yep. Right. And you had these uh, uh, atomic operators uh, defined for each of these uh, different actions and entities uh, in uh, in your tax law cases and statutes. How hard was the translation process? Oh, yeah. So I would say very hard. It's it's definitely a challenging thing to do. And there are, I would say, like two main challenges. The, the first one is actually understanding what the statutes mean, how they work. Uh, you have to understand them really thoroughly before you can translate something. Because, I mean, you're translating a rule into another rule. So it's it's not that simple. And you try to be thorough and you try to make sure that there are no edge cases and so on. But so for that, you need to understand the statutes. And then the second thing was deciding on some form of representation, some form of ontology. So fortunately, I didn't have to deal with very structured things. Uh, I think the most structured thing I had to deal with were uh, dates, but it can get uh, very involved if you want to. For example, I didn't have to represent a person as a tuple of different things like a name, a date of birth, and so on. But that's something that you might have to do. Um, actually, once you have those things, it's mostly a mechanical translation from text to prologue. When I say mechanical, I mean mechanical for, let's say, routine for a human. It's not that obvious. But actually, the, these kinds of translations are not um, too uncommon in the sort of the real world. There's lots of expert systems that are used for legal matters. So, um, so there, there are things that are used by agencies, for example, in computing whether or not people have the right to have access to a certain number of benefits. Lots of people use expert systems. Well, TurboTax, for example, is a very good example of, a, uh, of an expert system for uh, computing your own tax. But they're, they're a really big deal because they take a lot of work to, to build uh, and also to maintain. But there, there's, yeah, that, that question is, uh, there, there are lots of interesting papers on, on that topic, on how to build, how to translate law into code, or at least into expert systems, and, uh, uh, and how to do a good job of it. Right. It seems to me that uh, uh, in terms of building a prologue solver, the hardest part is actually the translation from natural language into these prologue rules, right? I mean, once that is done, it's, as you said, it's fairly uh, straightforward and deterministic, right? Yeah, but, but there's uh, a lot of... So when you have to deal with a closed world, somewhat simplified kind of thing, um, it's actually very... It's a very feasible task. Uh, but there are lots of things in law that are quite open and undefined. Uh, so for example, so this example is from a paper from 1986 about, so they were trying to formalize the rules that specify who can and cannot receive British citizenship. And so there are lots of things about you have to be born before this date, after this date, have to be born in the UK, not in the UK. And one thing was that the person who's asking for citizenship has to be, and I'm quoting this, of good character. And so that's typically a thing that isn't really accessible to a prologue system. That's something that it has to receive as input because obviously it has no clue what that means. And even for humans, it's, a, it's not super obvious. And, and, and more generally, the, the, the concepts in law are not necessarily super clear-cut. They're more open-textured. That's a, a word in law. Concepts are open-textured, which means that it's not entirely like the boundaries of a concept are not super clear. And actually, lots of problems arise in law because of that. So one, one really cool example is what if you walk in a park and you see a sign that says no vehicles in the park? Obviously, the sign means that you can't park your car in the park. 
but does it mean that you can't have a baby stroller in the park, for example? Because a baby stroller is some kind of vehicle, you transport a baby with it. So in this, this example is a bit more extreme, but in general, like defining what words mean is a really big deal in law. So I, actually, that is why, so Prolog Solver works in this closed world setup or where you're able to defer to a human. So for example, a human could check the box saying, okay, Peter is of good character. That's fine. You, don't, you, you can check the other things now. But yeah, but, but more generally, you, you have to have some kind of fuzzy natural language understanding. So that, that's also one of the reasons that we were interested in machine reading models, because they, since they have good performance in things like, um, like natural language inference, that's something that we were thinking they might be able to, to let's say, to handle, as opposed to what uh, expert systems know how to do. Yeah, I guess given this fuzziness, you could make the task as hard or as easy as you want, right? Yeah, but oh, actually, I should add, just um, in our data set, we have not included such fuzzy concepts. <laughs> so um, there's no, there's no, basically, there's no trick question. That's, yeah. Yeah, right. So you probably don't have cases where you describe everything the person, person has done and let the machine figure out whether he's a good character or not, right? I mean, yeah, that's, uh, that's, like, that's like too ambitious, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, that makes sense. And uh, how well does your prologue solver do? Uh, so the prolog solver solves all of the cases correctly, uh, which was also the goal, and um, yeah, and that that's also its its purpose. So we're pretty confident that if you wrote a new case uh, that falls under those statutes and you use the uh, atomic ontology appropriately, then it should be able to spit out the correct answer. Okay, so right, I guess I guess the fact that the prolog solver has a hundred percent. Uh, accuracy or whatever uh, means that uh, in the way you translated the natural language statements in these statutes into prologue rules, there are no contradictions, right? That's, that's what it proves. Right? Yeah. And also, so you, the hypothesis there is that if you have perfect natural language understanding, then you should be actually able to do this translation. So with perfect natural language understanding, you can translate any case into the prolog ontology, because uh, that's just a very narrow semantic parsing kind of exercise. And then you should also reasonably be able to translate the, the rules into the prolog, because that's also kind of semantic parsing. Uh, and then prolog gives you perfect reasoning. So with these two, so both perfect reasoning, perfect natural language understanding, you're actually able to solve the, the task, solve the data set. So we're also uh, sort of affirming that, yes, there is a solution to this task. It's, it's not hyper-complex. It's not like a strange task which only lawyers can do. It's something that's accessible to, to like computational methods, basically. Uh, but that relies on the prolog rules, right? I mean, the, the, the translations still require quite a bit of domain expertise, correct? Yeah, yeah that's, that's true. Right. Okay, right. And you mentioned uh, semantic parsing, and I think that's uh, that's a pretty important or interesting point here as well. I think you also made a very interesting semantic parsing dataset, which you didn't really talk much about in your paper, but uh, I think it would be pretty, pretty exciting to try and pose this as a semantic parsing problem as well. Yes, actually, that is that is a really good point. Um, I at some point I well, first of all, uh, yes, I think it would be a really interesting dataset. It's it's a bit small but still interesting. Uh, it's, yeah. And then there's the question of, um, did I do a good job of semantic parsing? Maybe some of the things are not, I mean, maybe some of the things, some of the ways I've, are, yeah, maybe the way I've translated this has been inconsistent at times. I'm, I'm not sure. 
but I was actually hoping to be able to build a much larger data set originally because there's a, uh, there have been previous efforts of translating laws, rules into uh, an expert system. So there's a, a work from 1987 where someone translated part of the Canadian tax law uh, into prologue. That's actually, that was a major inspiration. And he also describes a very nice method of how to do that. And unfortunately, he doesn't have the files anymore. Um, otherwise, that would also have been a really good data set. He has it in PDF form. So if you are able to OCR it very well, then maybe you could extend the data set. Same for the expert system from 1986 about the British, uh, about British, na British nationality that I mentioned earlier, that the files are just gone. So it's lost. But in general, what's the difficulty in building a larger data set than what you have? Yeah. So the, the main difficulty, I guess the question is how easy or how hard is it to write an expert system for law or like some legal domain? The main challenge is that you need people who know about the law and people who know about expert systems and you need to bring them together and they both have to work on this problem so that's first of all there's the problem of communication so both people need to have some knowledge of the other person's uh, domain um, so fortunately that's what we had at hopkins because andrew is a law professor i'm a computer science phd we kind of i mean he's also a computer science phd but together we were able to work this out and the other thing is that it's really expensive um, you can't you probably can't have Turkers do this for, I mean, unless you pay them really well and unless they are actually qualified. But yeah, there, there was a paper that came out recently that's discussing best practices on how to translate law into expert system. And it's, it's a really complex endeavor. Also because, so it's not enough to just translate it. You also need to make sure that you have tests so that it's actually correct. Um, that's that's essentially why it's it's really difficult to to build this out into a larger data set. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Let's talk about uh, uh, the machine learning models you build uh, using dense representations to replace the prolog rules. Uh, can you give us uh, a brief overview of what you did there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was mostly Andrew who did this, really. Um, so yeah, credits to him. So he did two, two specific things. So he adapted um, BERT to the legal domain. And he also built uh, word vectors for the tax law domain. So I'm going to start with Bert. So the raw data that he used there is uh, case.law. So that's case.law is the, well, I should start by saying Harvard has a, Harvard Library has a collection of all of the published cases from the US. So all the cases that were published in the US are in the Harvard Library. And they uh, recently put these on the internet. So you can browse that. Um, and so Andrew took, that data set filtered it into a 900 million token subset uh, and then did continued language model training for BERT. Let's just fine tuning BERT on, the, on this subset of case.law, which are just a number of cases. Uh, and so from there, you get legal BERT. And then the other thing is he took, um, took case.law again and then filtered out uh, only cases that had anything to do with tax law. So he filtered out cases that were too old, um, cases that were too short, in case that had nothing to do with tax law. Um, he also took a number of documents from the IRS and from the tax court, which is a specific uh, court in the US, and then um, just OCR'd those into another text data set. And so then he merged those two into a 147 million token data set. And then he ran the word to vec package on that. And so the legal, so legal BERT, we've done two things with that. We've tested it on a 
BIO tagging task, where the task was to detect uh, legal terms of art. And that actually did much better than normal BERT, also did much better than lawyers, incidentally. And then the tax vectors he used in a number of uh, analogy tasks, and they were doing really well. They were, they were able to do what word to vec is able to do in sort of the general domain, but for the uh, legal domain. Uh, sorry, just to uh, clarify, you said that, that the BIO tagging problem where you're uh, recognizing legal terms did better than BERT. You mean it did better than the mask language modeling objective of legal BERT or the previous uh, non-fine-tuned BERT? Oh, right. Yeah, no, sorry. That was, uh, I didn't explain this. So he, he had a BIO tagging task of legal terms of art. So there the goal is you get a chunk of text and you have to detect legal terms of art. And in that, in that context, the legal term of art is just some term or a couple of terms that appear in a, a legal dictionary. So it's just a tagging task where you have to detect legal terms. And so he tried BERT on that task and then legal BERT. And legal BERT was doing uh, much better than BERT, basically. Oh, and I forgot to mention, also legal BERT, we've, so we've used both BERT and legal BERT to measure, to measure perplexity on our data set of cases. And legal BERT was doing a lot better, although it has never seen anything from those cases. So it's much better attuned to the domain of our data set. Okay. And uh, how do you actually use the uh, representations from BERT and, or legal BERT and word to vec to actually answer the questions in your data set? Oh, yeah. So okay. we've, we've tried to do something as uh, straightforward as possible. So for BERT, I'm, I'm using BERT to embed um, the statute, the relevant statute, the case, and the question. Uh, and then I use the CLS, so the representation of the CLS token as the representation for the whole thing. Um, and then for when it's recognizing textual entailment, I project that to like a binary logit. And then for linear regression, I, I, well, sorry, for, the, uh, for computing the amount of tax owed for the numerical cases, it's just framed as linear regression. And then from there, there are a number of things we can try out. We're doing a small hyperparameter search around the sort of recommended setting for BERT. And then for the word vectors, uh, so it's a bit more involved. So now we have a method of embedding each word in the statutes, uh, the cases, and the question. And so we embed words uh, using that. And then we use a method from a 2017 paper from Sanjeev Arora to compute an embedding for the sequence. So roughly it's you average the word embeddings, and then it's a weighted average, but anyway. And then you have a learned projection that you use. And so you get an embedding for, for the question and the context on one side and the statute on the other side. And then uh, I have these two representations, and I use that in a, uh, just a binary um, uh, classifier for uh, textual entailment. And then I have a linear regression for the numerical cases. And there we experiment. Well, that, that, that is done by a multi-layer perceptron, so we experiment a bit with the depth and width. Okay, uh, that makes sense. So let's talk about how well these uh, models do. How well do they do? Are we yes. ready to replace TurboTax yet? Uh, not yet. <laughs> We're far from it. So I should mention that we also, so we have BERT, we've got the word vectors, but we also had some simple baselines. Uh, so since we have a 50-50 split between positive and negative cases, we had a majority baseline, which gets 50% right. doesn't matter whether you pick positive or negative entailment. Um, and then for the numerical cases, uh, we just picked the one 
a number that minimized our training loss on the train set. And then we just predict that same number all the time for the test set. And it turns out that two things happen. So first of all, because of the smaller size of the data set, we actually have to compute uh, significance tests. So we're reporting 90, the 90% confidence interval, which is decently large. It's on the order of several percent. Uh, and so within that confidence interval, BERT, word vectors, uh, these methods are performing as well as our baselines. So overall, um, it's relatively fair to say that BERT isn't doing much, isn't able to do much on this data set. And so we actually had a couple of hypotheses why, why that would be the case. Um, the first one was maybe it's just not, it's not adapted to the legal domain. Maybe it has no clue what, what these words mean. And so that's why we had these fine-tuned models. We had legal BERT and then the, what we call the tax vectors. But it turns out that these models are also doing, are also performing roughly at baseline level. So it's not a matter of being adapted to the legal domain. We also had other experiments uh, where we only gave the model access to the case and the question. So we, we did not let it see the statutes either at training or at test time. And it turns out that the performance is also still roughly the same. So this tells us that the data, there's no specific bias toward, like you cannot predict the answer just from looking at the case. But it also means that uh, the models that have access to the statutes likely aren't looking at the statutes. So there, there's been work at AI2 actually on um, teaching transformers to reason, where you feed them lots of rules and then examples and deductions, and you have, you have them predict the deductions based on the rules and the facts. And they're able to learn it, but it's also because they can, they're being fed massive amounts of data. So most likely these models would be able to solve this problem, but they, there's just not, not quite enough data for that. The data set is relatively small, so there's not enough signal there for them to pick it up. So that, that is our best uh, guess at this point. Uh, right. So to summarize what you said, uh, for the endowment problem, the models you built are not doing necessarily better than uh, the baseline, which is just essentially random. Right. I mean, because you have to either say entail or contradict, and that's the models are not learning much there. Yeah. Um, and uh, the performance is indifferent when you actually fine tune it on the legal domain. The legal bird is not necessarily doing better than bird. Yeah, right? that's correct. Yep. For the internal problem. Okay. And for the numerical reasoning, though, the question answering part, uh, it does look like uh, they're doing somewhat better than the baselines. Oh, yeah. So that's quite possible, but it's not quite significant. So the, te the test set for numerical reasoning only has 20 data points. So this means that if you get one right, you can change your performance by 5% points. So basically a model that does 25% uh, versus another one that only does 20%, maybe it's just getting one more answer right as compared to the other one. So it, it, might, it, it could look like a large performance jump, but it isn't such a large performance jump. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So it, it, yeah. It's slightly misleading. Okay. Uh, when you look at the kinds of errors that uh, these models make, uh, did you have any insights uh, into why they're not learning the things that you want them to learn? Not really. At, at this point, since they're performing mostly, they're, they're performing at baseline level. So there isn't much we could learn from that. But from what I've looked at, it looks like uh, the model tends to make, so for every pair of cases, it tends to make the same prediction. So for example, for case, so if you take the case pair that's about subsection 2A1A, whether that's the positive or negative case, it's actually going to predict, for example, in both cases, it's going to predict entailment. So it tends to have the same prediction for 
cases that belong to the same case pair. Two cases that belong to the same case pair don't necessarily have the same text in them or the same facts. They're going to be similar, obviously, uh, because they're thematically similar, but not necessarily. That's, that's pretty much the extent of, uh, of what we can say. Do you have a sense of how transformers like Bert-like models do on other tasks that have similarly sized training data sets? Like, I'm wondering if the, the kind of limitation of the performance as a function of the data set size is related to the nature of this task and how it involves reasoning or something more broad, like a limitation of fine-tuning these models in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I am quite sure that if you had uh, very large amounts of data, you should be able to, I mean, a transformer model should be able mm-hmm. to get this right. But I'm saying this based on a paper where mm-hmm. by Peter Clark, where they are generating synthetic data, which also has uh, simple sort of deduction mm-hmm. type rules, and then where the input is a number of facts also stated mm-hmm. in natural language. And then transformers are able to generalize and to pick things up. They also had a paper on doing this with already trained models and rules that were a bit more real-world uh, domain, and it also worked um, very well. So my, my impression that is that models would be able to, to do this at some point, but that here it's just the training data is too small. Another thing is, um, so there are different things, but tr- uh, training transformers from scratch, mm-hmm. for example, rarely works on small, on, on, um, small amounts of data. Uh, even if you shrink it to a very small size. So for example, in low-resource machine learning, you cannot do very well with a transformer, but on machine translation, you can do very well with a mm-hmm. transformer. So that's not to say that a uh, a much larger, much better pre-trained language model wouldn't be able to do well in this task. I mean, we've seen that large-scale language models could do zero-shot learning or few, very few-shot learning. So I'm, I'm absolutely not excluding that this wouldn't be the case. It's solely possible that uh, GPT-3 or some successor model actually manages to solve mm-hmm. this data set. Got it. Yeah, so this data set is kind of meant as a test set for whatever way we decide to eventually solve this task, whether that's more data or working on zero, more zero-shot methods. Is that, is that the kind of idea? Yeah, it's a, it's a starting point. It's, uh, at, at this point, this is, mm-hmm. this is it. But I'm not excluded, but this is sort of much more uh, work that's much mm-hmm further out but i i would be interested in scaling uh scaling the production of such a data set so being able to rapidly build up a large test set for either for an expert system or for a legal reasoning uh mm-hmm. model on a large set of mm-hmm. statutes for example uh, this could be done automatically semi-automatically yeah for the for this here we had to control every aspect of it so we couldn't simply go out and pick a number of cases from case.law and then heuristically match them to legal statutes and then call it a data, a data set because that would would have i mean there we would have created lots more problems than we would have uh, solved mm-hmm. with it so here we really had to narrow the domain down and then make sure that well, we could connect mm-hmm. all of the dots so you have this clean data set now and then you can make better methods with noisy data but now you have this clean data set for evaluation regardless of the method yeah that's that's exactly it. And th- there was something similar uh, that so there was this uh, data set called uh, the Fracas data set where a number of computational linguists sat down and just wrote down a number of entailment cases that uh, NLI models would have to be able to get in order to be able to claim that they had natural language understanding or that they mm-hmm. understood entailment 
and that's that's just a hundred cases or something, and you cannot do much with that. Uh, but then later on, we had uh, much larger data sets mm-hmm. like NLI, for example. Got it. Thank you. Yep, sure. Um, okay, so based on your experience with this data set so far, what do you think are the most promising techniques to go forward? Uh, you did mention <laughs> GPT-3, but uh, are there any, is there anything else that you want think would uh, be promising? Uh, so generally, I'm I'm interested in uh, uh, in the route of um, of neural networks. So I'm not. I'm not so much interested in building another expert system for this. Uh, we know that they work, but they have a number of limitations. They're expensive to build. They, they're also expensive to update. You can't really you know, generalize them to new pieces of legislation. You cannot adapt them that easily to new domains of law, for example. So I think even though these models are not doing so well right now, uh, it makes a lot of sense to go the route of you know statistical models that you can that can learn from from data basically. Uh, so uh, currently, neural symbolic approaches are sort of gaining traction in NLP, um, also in uh, image processing, so in computer vision. And so, my impression is that this this problem here is a really clear case where neural symbolic approaches might work and might um, prove to be really efficient. So that's the general direction I'm interested in to tackle this. Okay, makes sense. That's all the questions I had for you about your work. Uh, is there anything that you wanted to talk about that uh, we didn't ask you? Um, nope, not really. Um, uh, I might just mention that the, the data sets and the Prolog solver are available. So they're, they're linked to in the paper, but uh, we've also grouped all of these resources on website called nlp.jhu.edu slash law. Okay, I'll make sure to include uh, a link to that in the description for this uh, for this episode. Okay, thanks a lot for talking to us. Uh, this is a pretty exciting data set. I hope uh, more people will uh, work on this. Yeah, thanks a lot for, for having me. I'm also really excited. I was very excited when I got your email. Yeah, I'm really glad you guys are interested in this. This is really cool. Oh, thanks. Thank Thanks.